Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Welcome to episode number 271 of the ETPHD team podcast with myself. It's going to be a little bit of a ranty one today. I've had my peppermint and licorice tea. I've done my yoga. I've done my unguided meditation. I've been out for a walk. I've got my hot water bottle, my self-soothing attire, my knitwear, my fleece, and I'm ready to go. These things will all help downregulate me as the topics for today slightly upregulate me, but I'm going to continue to show up as my best self regardless. The reason for today's podcast is because, let's be honest, there's a lot of horrific nutrition advice on some very big podcasts right now. And if you read my weekly subscriber emails, which are free, but I never spam on, which you should be reading. And if you're not, then the link is in the show notes. Then you will know, if you have been reading these, that I have been challenged more so recently to tackle some of the misinformation that is being spread. You know, initially when this awful nutrition advice started getting thrown around on these big podcasts, I kind of thought, oh, I don't want to fall into culture, I find it quite boring, you know, it's great for other people, but it's not necessarily great for my mental health. And there are a lot of people already calling these people out. They don't need me to chime in. However, that was probably 12 months ago. And since then, it has got exponentially worse. Um, That's because these people are controversial, right? They spark conversation and anything extreme gets traction. And a lot of these people are being positioned as experts because of the podcast that they're on or because they have doctor in front of their name. They are experts at one specific thing. So before I begin, I would like to highlight that my rants about are about the information being put out and not an indication of what I think of specific people. People are allowed to have differences of opinions and be respectful and maybe even be friends. My main problem is when things are not a difference of opinion but things are scientifically incorrect and yet talked about as if they are scientifically proven which by the way doesn't actually exist if you understand science you'll never hear someone say if you understand science science proves something because science is ever changing that's not what actually happens anyway because some of this stuff is so incorrect it is harmful and that is when I start to get riled every single week the ETPHD team work with over 250 people to support them in re-establishing their health, re-establishing their relationship with food, re-establishing the peace with their bodies and shit nutrition advice, like the stuff that gets thrown around on these podcasts and by these really outspoken, controversial people often. Some of this is the reason why people struggle so much with their relationship with food. So it pisses me off when I see it at the other end of it. 
let's take for starters personalized nutrition advice so you know you might think well you do personalized nutrition advice you work one-to-one with people that's not what I mean I mean physiologically on an individual level for example eating for your mutt your mutt (laughs) your gut microbiome and eating for your or changing the way you eat for your blood sugar response right you'll have all seen this in some way shape or form recently the idea behind this is that we test our poo samples and well we don't test them ourselves hopefully we send them off although I mean you could try but that's not how I want to be spending my Saturday mornings um we test our poo samples and our blood glucose response to food and then we as a result of this people will tell us what to eat and how we should be eating and when we should be eating food order excluding certain foods including certain foods etc now there are there's a big business in this right but I have seen some many hot and helpful messages and to be quite frank I could do a podcast every week on one of the pieces of incorrect information that I've seen or unhelpful messages that I've seen from this type of um, nutrition advice so honestly I don't want the entire ETBHD team podcast to be about calling people out and unpicking other people's incorrect information so let's pick some of these unhelpful messages that I've seen and hopefully you can hear these and start to take some of the critique that I'm proposing and apply it to other parts of this nutrition information that is being thrown around. Now let's start with oats, which seems absolutely obscene that I'm having to say on our podcast that oats are okay. Like it's, anyway, recently um, someone had said that Um, the healthiness of oats depends on you as an individual and how your body responds to oats first of all you know so you need to get this individual test Um, I'm assuming he means because of blood glucose levels um, which by the way we do not need to um, manage ourselves unless we have insulin resistance or diabetes our bodies are great at managing our blood glucose response it's really what they're one thing that they're designed to do really pretty well regardless um so we have to eat organic oats non-organic oats um contain pesticides that apparently are unsafe to consume doesn't matter that the fda has said that they are safe to consume that's irrelevant um and the idea around having also organic oats too is that they apparently have six percent more fiber now one thing to note when you look at people talking about nutrition advice right when they use percentage numbers this is what we call like a relative amount and it's different from absolute numbers so give you an example if something has 16 percent fiber which is like organic oats or these specific organic organic oats, another set or another bowl of oats has 10% fiber, like non-organic oats, you might be like, whoa, 16% is so much higher than 10% fiber. But if you look at the actual amount of fiber in a bowl of oats, 16% might be something like a gram. So you might get like a gram more fiber in organic oats versus non-organic oats. Now that's just a, an estimate of the number, the amount of fiber, obviously the size of your bowl, etc., is, is going to have slight differences. But realistically, the absolute difference is minimal. But people who try and 
push extreme messages will say relative amounts of things. Is it 10 to 16%, like 6% difference in the amount of fiber. Um, when I saw this post, someone sent it to me and were like, is this true? Should we be avoiding oats? One, no. Uh, but two, should we be eating only organic oats because, quote unquote, it doesn't cost that much more. When I looked at the comments on the post specifically about oats, someone had said, it all feels like so much to worry about. I'm doing all I can to keep my children healthy, having just been through breast cancer treatment. But the cost of living is so hard and keep buying organic food. But we are trying so hard. But sometimes it feels like we can't win. That we'll always be poisoning our children. This is absolutely disgusting. Do we really think that our nation are struggling with their health because of not buying organic oats? It's ludicrous. There's no evidence that compares organic oats versus normal oats and risk of things like cancer, which is the implication from having foods with more pesticides on it apparently more pesticides on it there's no evidence to say that's true it's elitist it's this hugely privileged stance on nutrition that's been shoved down our throats and what pisses me off is when it starts to shame people shame parents for quote unquote not doing their best for their kids because they're not buying organic oats when this is not the problem for reference oats are rich in fiber they're super satiating and yes they also have a good source of beta-glucan which is helpful for us and for our health because of the impact it has on um, lipid transportation. You can buy a bag for 45p. Um, they're great. One thing to also know which is really 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 important in a lot of this messaging people are using um, diet and it's linked to cancer to share or to scare people into using their nutrition methods. And another medical doctor said on a podcast recently that 70% of cancer is caused by diet. Millions of people heard this. Realistically, when we look at the research, about 30 to 35% of cancer could be attributed to diet. But there's no evidence that cancer results from any one ingredient or food type, much like other health outcomes. Other things that are more important, lifestyle, social determinants of health, saturated fat, trans fats, alcohol, calories, fibre intake, they all play a role in long-term health. Organic oats are not our biggest problem. Another message from a similar nutrition group slash the same nutrition group was that um, protein is the reason that people are gaining fat and are living in larger bodies than potentially for them is helpful for them. Um, this pisses me off because it's a scaremongering of actually really healthful foods. Oats, healthful foods. Protein, healthful macronutrient, an essential macronutrient that many people struggle to get enough of as it is, despite what is currently being touted as on these podcasts that people are eating too much protein and it's causing them to gain body fat. According to the actual research, about 50% of older adults don't meet the RDA in the UK, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body mass per day, which is already lower than the optimal target, which is in direct opposition to what was said on a recent podcast. By the way, protein is directly related to our muscle mass, which is directly related to our longevity and our long-term health. 
Yes, if you eat too much protein, it leads to fat gain, provided you're eating the calorie surplus. But it's not the protein, it's the calories. It's also far, far, far harder to eat in a calorie surplus if a large proportion of your calories are coming from a satiating macronutrient like protein. Again, scaremongering of a nutrient that is the least of our troubles. When it comes to this personalised nutrition around our gut, everyone loves the gut right now, right? Ask anyone. People are obsessed with maximising their gut health. A lot of the podcasts that I listen to that are non-nutrition ones, everyone's talking about maximising their gut health, right? Yes, our gut is important to overall health, but the evidence that we have for this is in its infancy surrounding the magnitude of its role. Beyond a varied plant-based diet, that's rich in fibre, stress management, moderating caffeine, moderating alcohol intake, and including food sources of pre and probiotics and hydration and movement, which is actually quite a lot, there isn't much more to consider right now. There is no evidence to suggest an entire nutrition protocol based on your individual gut microbiome. It's, it's not there. It doesn't exist yet. And I'm saying yet because maybe one day this will change. If you feel better having done a diet like this and you think, well, it worked for me, I focused on my gut health and I excluded the foods that I was supposed to exclude based on my gut microbiome and my tests, it's probably because you spent some time focusing on your health. You felt empowered by doing so. You ate more plants, ate more variety and you're more mindful in the whole, which is amazing, amazing and something that you should feel proud of. But my problem is that we're seeing some really solid pieces of nutrition advice in there. If anyone eats sufficient fibre and or more fibre and colour and variety of plant-based foods and reduces but doesn't exclude things like ultra-processed foods, then we're going to feel better that. We're going to feel better. And all of this is all of this is the reason why you're seeing positive change with this kind of quote-unquote personalised nutrition advice. Right? This, these things are why. It's not because you've excluded food A or food B based on your gut microbiome results or your blood sugar results. And this is where it gets frustrating because ultimately you could do that with behaviour change. You could do that for a lot lower cost and a lot less complications and ultimately a lot less food rules. The thing is, is that 99% of the advice given by these kind of gut-focused companies is the same general advice that we always give at ETPHD, any evidence-based nutritionist will give. But it's being sold to you under the guise of being individualized. It's being overcomplicated and made super elitist and expensive and controversial because of some of the excessive food rules that are put on top of it. There is some interesting research being done in terms of the associations of certain foods in our in our gut microbiome, but it isn't enough to make individual recommendations. It's it's not there yet. Um, your gut microbiome too. the The results that these people give you are based on your current dietary habits. Right. So this changes in response to what you've recently eaten, and they use poop as a proxy. I repeat, they use poop as a proxy which is which is saying that your poop microbiome is not necessarily reflective or entirely reflective of your gut microbiome 
these things might change over time. We might see more evidence or just evidence at all about some of this some of this in the next 10 20 years but it's it's not there and the the problem is is the food rules that come alongside this type of dietary advice based on a body of evidence that's super super weak that just isn't there in my opinion it does more harm than good because of the disordered eating potential that it has and the expense, ultimately, to people who are investing into this. Another huge piece of, or a huge uh, voice currently in the kind of podcast nutrition space, one that was brought to my attention recently when I was asked on the EIQ Nutrition Live, or Emma and I were asked on the EIQ Nutrition Live, should everyone fast during menopause? Because someone said that, quote-unquote, Everyone should fast during perimenopause. Someone had DM'd me and said that they listened to this podcast with this woman talking about fasting during perimenopause and she'd bought the book and had tried the protocol fasting for a month and felt more stressed and completely exhausted. So maybe she needed to try a break before trying again. The answer is not to break and try again when you're fasting and you find it really hard. The answer is not doing it over and over again. Perimenopause can be challenging enough without adding physical hunger, food preoccupation and micromanaging your nutrition into the mix. Some of the claims made in this realm. One, fasting is imperative in menopause. Okay, if you ever hear nutrition advice like this that is blanket black and white statements about nutrition, what people should all do, avoid at all costs avoid there is no blanket black and white everyone should do x or y let me take off my obvious etphd disordered eating lens for a minute because if you're experiencing disordered eating then fasting is always a mistake a problem here is that many people don't even know that they're experiencing disordered eating habits emotionally eating overeating binge eating over restriction food preoccupation guilt around food these are all signs that you're experiencing disordered eating if this is you fasting is not imperative regardless here are some of the claims that she's made around fasting autophagy is thought to kick in at 16 to 18 hours of fasting so Autophagy, by the way, is a term that's used to describe cell turnover and people often link it to living until you're very, very old and thriving. Um, As of right now, there's no evidence to say that autophagy is linked to um, living to an old age unless you are a rat. So hopefully you do not identify as a rat. If you do, let's work on your self-compassion unless you're my ex-boyfriend. The effect of fasting on autophagy is the same as calorie restriction so if you are in a larger body and you fast and or you restrict your calories the impact is the same on autophagy but regardless autophagy has not been linked to living to an older age or any health markers in human being people it's something that people often use to sound intelligent another claim that fasting stabilizes blood sugar Like I said, amazingly, your body regulates blood sugar itself. Unless you're experiencing insulin resistance, in which case, by the way, there are plenty of other things that you can do to support yourself, like movement, like 
eating more of your calories earlier in the day because we see a reduction in insulin sensitivity later at night. And these things, eating low GI carbohydrates versus high GI carbohydrates, walking around your meals, not whilst eating your meals, managing your stress levels, these can all help, right? And fasting is not superior to these things and doesn't add like this additional amazing um, ability of your body to regulate blood sugar. What's interesting too is that often these fasting protocols are like backloaded, so people will fast in the morning and eat more at night. If we're looking at maximizing your insulin sensitivity, we want to eat more in the morning and less at night. It's the opposite of what a lot of these fasting protocols suggest. Another claim, we see weight loss and improved metabolic function with fasting. I cannot repeat this enough that fasting does not lead to any greater increases in weight loss or fat loss compared to a calorie deficit. It, it doesn't. Fasting is not going to cause you to get to lose more weight than a calorie deficit alone. Another claim about fasting in general and potentially fasting in men menopause is that fasting enhances hormones. I don't know what she means by enhances hormones, by the way. But there's no evidence that links fasting to physiologically relevant changes in hormones during perimenopause. Even more importantly, there's no evidence that these changing changes in hormones are linked to symptoms of perimenopause. Fasting does not seem to impact estrogen even in premenopausal women. I have the research to back that up. Another common claim, regardless of the person that we're talking to, is that fasting enhances fat burning. Now let's have a quick physiology lesson here. Our bodies burn the fuel source that's available to us. So for example, I ate crumpets this morning. Right now I'm using carbohydrates to fuel my podcast rage. I'm not using fat because carbohydrates are available to me. If I'd eaten a spoon of peanut butter, which I kind of now want, I'd be using fat as fuel because I'd just eaten fat. If I hadn't eaten breakfast, I'd be using some of my store fat because my muscle glycogen will have depleted overnight. Or not all my muscle glycogen, but some of my glycogen stores will have depleted overnight. We burn what's available. But using more fat for fuel has no impact on our health markers or perimenopause or our body composition. If that were the case, there'd be research supporting high fat diets all the time, but there isn't. You do not lose more body fat if you fast. You do not lose more body fat if you're burning fat for fuel when calories are matched. We just use whatever fuel is available to our bodies at that time. And there are certain things that will cause more fat burning or less fat burning. Like if you're on a treadmill, you'll have seen like if you work between a certain heart rate zone, that's when you're more likely to use fat as fuel. Whereas if you're higher intensity exercise, you're more likely to use carbohydrate as fuel. But again, that doesn't impact our body composition or our health. As a side note, by the way, many people anecdotally say that going keto, i.e. burning fat, more fat for fuel, supports their cognition, which can be impacted during perimenopause, but the evidence doesn't support this for most people. And beyond calorie restriction, um, it doesn't make any difference. There are, there's maybe some worth in cognition around um, neurological disease and symptoms in ep epilepsy, but again, this is disputed. You can burn all the fat 
that you want but if your energy balance is the same there's no difference in body composition this has been shown a million times over fasting causes growth hormone spikes apparently yes you see a reduction in available growth hormone during perimenopause and actually in aging in general but again the evidence isn't there that fasting creates a physiologically relevant change in growth hormone or igf1 levels more so than calorie restriction in overweight or obesity and exercise for reference when you listen to these people on podcasts have a look at them have a look at the website have a look at the social media look like critique some of the things that they say this person for example advocates a manifestation phase of fasting now we all know that i love the sage we all know that i love the crystals and the incense um but that's because they allow me to set an intention they allow me to be present they self-soothe not because they allow me to manifest something around my nutrition or anything in life. If you see things like this, when someone gives nutrition advice, start to get skeptical about some of the other stuff. Don't just listen to some of it and ignore the rest because then you're just like kind of seeing things through the bias lens that you want to see things see things through. Another thing to note is look at the credentials of the person giving the nutrition advice. Medical doctor, often doesn't give any nutrition training. Uh, This person in particular is a chiropractor, doesn't offer any nutritional training. I am a doctor of exercise physiology, but that doesn't mean I know anything about physics or fashion. People who have a PhD know a hell of a lot about one's very, very small thing. Okay, that doesn't mean we know everything about everything else. It definitely doesn't mean that people know everything about nutrition. A lot of this stuff is really, really convincing because people pick random bits of research with no reference to the limitations of the research and could just be like one study as opposed to looking at the body of research that we have. These people often will use themselves as anecdotal evidence or people that they know as anecdotal evidence and they're often very like opinionated and outspoken. Um, Often, too, this type of nutrition advice is targeted to people that are maybe going through vulnerable stages in their life. Maybe they are pregnant or um, going through perimenopause or experiencing chronic pain. And so when we're going through these phases, we look to slightly more extreme advice in the hopes that something is going to help for us. So I totally get why people buy into some of this stuff because it's really, really hard to navigate. But ultimately... Just because something is less bad or not that bad in terms of nutrition advice, it doesn't make it it good. And a lot of this type of podcast nutrition advice or controversial nutrition advice right now is just exacerbating the food morality problem and also just creates this element of shame for people that are already trying their best. So even if there's some good bits of nutrition advice and even if most of it's good nutrition advice but it's dishonest in some way or it's um, it's kind of penetrated with crap in between or lack of evidence base in between, I'm still going to have a problem with it because it still has a potential to impact people's relationships with food, their health and their shame around just literally trying their best. We're all trying our best and this type of incorrect information just doesn't help anyone one thing i've definitely noticed too is that i feel like a lot of this new dietary advice is just like a new diet culture a new way of creating 
a big income for people by creating new silly food rules. And what's weird is that I feel like it's been pushed by a lot of the people who condone diet culture. Like people who think who are quite anti-diet are pushing glucose monitoring and um, maybe not so much fasting, but like this kind of elitist approach to food. Um, And I don't think that everyone necessarily realises that's what's going on. And there's just this huge potential for creating disordered eating. I read an article recently, and I put this in um, an email that I wrote, that was written by a journalist who try who was trying out this kind of current nutrition app protocol um, that's very big at the moment. And she said, it becomes strangely addictive checking the glucose sensor after each meal to see how I'm responding to different foods surely that's not what we want to get addicted to monitoring ourselves after every meal monitoring markers that again unless we live with diabetes or insulin resistance mean absolutely nothing even in those who do have blood glucose control challenges one marker of blood glucose after one meal isn't physiologically relevant i love the focus on health over calorie counting although as we all know you can do both healthily but That is kind of the extent of my appreciation for this type of current podcast nutrition. I think as an add-on to this, something that I saw recently on social media and something that I'm grappling with a little bit more myself is some people that we can't call out. So you'll know that I haven't used any names specifically here because to be honest, I don't think it necessarily adds anything to it. But it's much easier to collectively call out people with millions of followers or who are making millions of pounds off you. It feels less personal. But on a smaller scale, there are a lot of issues with the nutrition advice given out by professionals too on social media. And this was this kind of conversation I had with the other coaches recently was triggered by a post where someone was kind of demonising processed foods um, like sports nutrition products and kind of, yeah, these processed foods and saying, preferably, we should be having whole foods. And and to me, and this was under the... This is somebody that works with people's relationships with foods, right? And I thought, interesting that we're... The reason that she said to avoid these kind of processed sports foods is because they are, um, they create a health halo around them. This health halo suggests that these foods are kind of morally better than others. But on the flip side of this, when we say we should avoid these foods, are we not then saying that these kind of quote unquote whole foods are actually health haloed, that these foods are better than the other? It's really, really tough because... We all post on social media through our own lenses, our own experiences and our own opinions. And again, everyone's entitled to have a different opinion. And to me, the main problems are these loud voices on big podcasts saying these things as fact. But there are also just challenges in general with all of us collectively, these quieter voices of authority. Sometimes these things, these posts reflect our own relationships with food and ultimately I remember seeing a personal trainer talking about you know where their best relationship with food was and to me that wasn't a hugely helpful relationship with food but it was their best relationship with food and this was to you know thousands of people and I thought again interesting that 
people now see that as a good relationship with food but but there's so much more to that but the person posting about this again it was like okay well that's their lens that's that's their best relationship with food so what can we actually kind of do about it i think that we can listen to nutritionists listen to dietitians know that nutritionist isn't a protected term by the way dietitians are registered dietitians and that is a protected term um, nutritionist is not i'm a registered nutritionist with the association for nutrition but again it's not like a it's not recognized or protected term so that everyone can call themselves a nutritionist find sources that you can trust but always listen with a critical eye if something seems obscure there's probably a reason and just notice your own biases and think maybe someone else has got their own biases in their own lens and that's okay um but notice if you want something to be true or you feel like you identify with something and you feel like pe- something's quite personal. Sometimes that can make us more believing of certain things or trusting of certain things that are not necessarily helpful. And on a kind of overall perspective of your nutrition, like ask yourself, what does my overall diet quality look like? Are my thoughts and emotions surrounded or focused solely on food? Or what are my thoughts and emotions surrounding food? Am I moving regularly in a way that my body allows? Am I consuming as many plant-based foods that are accessible to me at this time? Where possible, are relatively fewer of my food choices ultra-processed? These are the things that we want to be thinking about. Not, have I eaten the most expensive type of oats or have I eaten the wrong type of fruit? So just stay critical and please share this. If you think this is an important message, I would very much appreciate it. Okay, thanks, bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please do feel free to like, share, subscribe and review. And if you would like to chat to me, then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes.